Welcome to the Crack Open a Classic podcast, the podcast where I read a chapter or two, an episode aloud, ask questions to help you think about the chapter, and open the world of classics to you. So grab a cup of coffee or tea, and let's jump into the chapter. Chapter 18, 4,000 Leagues Under the Pacific. The next day, the 18th of November, I had completely recovered from my exertions of the day before, and went up to the platform at the very moment when the second-in-command of the Nautilus was uttering his daily phrase. It suddenly struck me that the expression either referred to the state of the sea or meant nothing in sight. The ocean was deserted. Not a ship on the horizon, the crests on the Isle of Crespo had disappeared during the night. The sea, absorbing all the colors of the spectrum except the blue, reflected them in every direction and covered the water with an admirable shade of indigo. A broad, wavy pattern played on the silken surface of the sea. While I stood there admiring the splendor of the ocean, Captain Nemo appeared. He did not seem to be aware of my presence and proceeded to make a series of astronomical observations. Then, leaning on the cage of the searchlight, he appeared lost as he gazed at the vast expanse of the sea. Meanwhile, some twenty sailors of the Nautilus, all well-built, energetic men, had come up on the platform. They had come to haul in the fishing nets that had been cast during the night. Evidently, these sailors belonged to different nationalities, although they all appeared to be European. I was sure that I recognized some Irishmen, Frenchmen, Slavs, and a Greek or Cretan. These were the men of few words. They spoke to each other only in that weird foreign language whose origin I could not even guess, and I could not therefore question them. The nets were hauled on board. They were drag nets similar to those used on the coast of Normandy, large pockets held partly open by a floating rod and a chain threaded through the lower meshes. These pouches, as they were dragged along, swept the ocean bottom with their iron meshes, picking up every sort and kind of fish in their path. That day they brought up some curious specimens from those waters teeming with life. Anglerfish, whose clownish antics qualify them for the stage, black commercians equipped with antennae, triggerfish encircled with red stripes, poisonous globefish, whose venom is very subtle, olive-colored lampreys, macrohinchi with silvery scales, trichuri, whose electric shock is as effective as that of the electric eel or the numfish, Scaly nodopteri with brown transverse bands, green cod, several varieties of freckled gobies, etc. Also, some larger fish, a corynx with a big head and a body three feet long, several handsome bonitos, blue and silver striped, and three splendid tuna, whose great speed had not helped them elude the net. I estimated that this catch brought in more than a thousand pounds of fish, which was good, but nothing unusual. These nets are left to drift for several hours, trapping within their folds a whole aquatic world. Hence, we never lacked food of excellent quality. The speed of the Nautilus and its electrical light always attracted fresh supplies whenever needed. This catch was immediately lowered through the hatch of the galley, some to be eaten fresh, the rest to be preserved. This operation over and the supply of fresh air replenished. I thought the Nautilus would resume her underwater voyage. I was about to return to my room when Captain Nemo unexpectedly turned toward me and said, Look at that ocean, Professor. Doesn't it have an individuality of its own? Doesn't it have its moods of anger and its fits of passion? Yesterday it slept just as we slept, and now, here, it is waking after spending a peaceful night. He had not said good day or good evening. It was just as though the strange man were continuing a conversation that we had begun earlier. 
Look, he continued, it is awakening under the caresses of the sun and is ready to renew its daily existence. It is a fascinating study to follow the workings of its organism. It has a pulse, arteries, and its spasms too. I agree with the learned Mari, who maintained that it has a circulation as real as the circulation of the blood in animals. Obviously, Captain Nemo did not expect me to reply, and it seemed to me pointless to punctuate his speech with, of course, certainly, or how right you are. He seemed to be talking to himself, pausing after each phrase. He was meditating aloud. Yes, he said, the ocean has a real circulation, and to keep it going, the creator of all things has only to change its temperature or its salinity, or to multiply its animalcules. The change in temperature varies, the density, causing currents and countercurrents, evaporation which is nil in the extreme north, but very high in equatorial regions, bring about a permanent exchange of the tropical and polar waters. Moreover, I have actually come across currents flowing from north to south and south to north, which form the ocean's respiratory system. I have seen a molecule of seawater heated at the surface, dropped down into that depths, attain its maximum density at two degrees below zero, then cooling further, become lighter and rise again. At the pole, you see the results of this phenomenon, and you will understand why. Through this law of provident nature, water can only freeze at the surface. As Captain Nemo was finishing his sentence, I asked myself, The pole? Is this intrepid character actually going to take us there? The captain was silent for a moment, surveying the sea that was the subject of such a thorough, unceasing study for him. Then he went on. Salts are present in considerable quantity in the sea, Professor. If you were to extract all the salts it contains, you would obtain a mass equal to four and a half million cubic leagues, which spread out over the globe would form a layer more than 30 feet high. Do not imagine that the presence of these salts is due only to the caprice of nature far from it. It is they that make the waters less evaporable, so that the winds cannot pick up too much vapor, which, when condensed, would submerge the temperate zones. Salts play an immense role, the role of stabilizing the overall ecology of the earth. Captain Nemo stopped, got up, walked a few steps along the platform, and came back to me. And this microscopic organisms, he continued, those billions of animalcules, of which there are millions in a drop of water, and 800,000 of which are required to make one milligram, their role is no less important. They absorb marine salt, assimilate the solid elements in the water, and by making corals and mandrapores, they build calcareous continents. Then the drop of water, deprived of its mineral element, becomes lighter comes up to the surface again, absorbs the salts left by evaporation, becomes heavier, descends again, and brings to the animalcules new elements to absorb. We have, then, a double current, ascending and descending, a continuous movement and continuous life. The life of the sea is more intense than life on land, more exuberant, more infinite, spreading throughout the parts of the ocean. They say it is the element of death for man, but it is the element of life for myriads of animals and for me. Whenever Captain Nemo spoke like this, he was a transformed man, and he aroused an extraordinary emotion within me. That, he added, that is living. That is the true existence. I visualize the existence of nautical towns, clusters of submarine dwellings, which, like the Nautilus, would rise to the surface every morning to breathe. Free towns, independent cities, if ever there were. But still, who knows whether or not some despot. Captain Nemo ended his sentence with a violent gesture. Then, addressing me directly, as if to drive away some depressing thought, he said, Monsieur Aranax, do you know how deep the ocean is? I only know, Captain, what the principal soundings have indicated. Could you give me those figures so that I may check them if the occasion arises? 
Here are some that I recall, I replied. If I'm not mistaken, an average depth of 27,000 feet have been found in the North Atlantic and 8,000 feet in the Mediterranean. The most remarkable soundings have been made in the South Atlantic near the 35th parallel, and they gave 40,000 to 49,000 feet. It is calculated that if the bottom of the sea were leveled, its average depth would be about four miles or so. Well, Professor, replied Captain Nemo, we shall show you something better than that. Incidentally, the average depth in this part of the Pacific, I assure you, is only 13,000 feet. Having said this, Captain Nemo walked to the hatch and disappeared down the ladder. I followed him down and went into the big saloon. Immediately, the propeller began to turn, and soon the log indicated a speed of 20 miles. During the days and weeks that followed, I seldom saw Captain Nemo. His appearances were rare. His second-in-command would regularly mark the ship's course on the chart so that I could always tell the exact route of the Nautilus. Kinsey and Land spent long hours with me. Kinsey had described the wonders of our expedition to our friend, and the Canadian was sorry he had not gone with us. However, I hoped that another opportunity would present itself to visit the forests on the bottom of the ocean. Almost every day, for some hours, the panels in the saloon were kept open, and we never tired of exploring the mysteries of the underwater world. The general direction of the Nautilus was southeast, and her depth between 300 and 450 feet. One day, however, for some strange reason, she was diverted diagonally by means of her inclined planes and reached a depth of 6,500 feet. Here the thermometer showed a temperature of 39.65 degrees Fahrenheit, a temperature which at that depth seemed common to all latitudes. On the 26th of November, at 3 o'clock in the morning, the Nautilus crossed the Tropic of Cancer at longitude 172 degrees. On the 27th, we passed within sight of the Sandwich Islands, where the famous Captain Cook died on the 14th of February, 1779. We had been traveling 4,860 leagues from our point of departure. When I came up to the platform that morning, I saw two miles away to leeward Hawaii, the biggest of the seven islands formed that archipelago. I could clearly see its cultivated coastline, the various chains of mountains that run parallel to the coast and the vol volcanoes dominated by Mauna Kea, rising 15,000 feet above sea level. Our catch in this area included several peacock flabella, a graceful polyp peculiar to this part of the ocean. The Nautilus continued to head southeast. On the 1st of December, we crossed the equator at longitude 142 degrees, and on the 4th of the same month, after a speedy uneventful passage, we started the Marquesas at latitude 8 degrees 57 minutes south and longitude 139 degrees 32 minutes west. I could see, three miles away, Martin's Peak in Nokohiva, the main island in the group, which belongs to France. I saw only the wooded mountains against the horizon because Captain Nemo did not like to hug the coast too close. Here, our fishing nets caught some fine specimens, coraphinae, with their azure fins and golden tails whose flesh is unsurpassed, hologymnesae, with hardly any scales, but which have an exquisite flavor, osterhinkae, with bony jaws and yellow-tinged thacerds, as good as bonitos, all worthy morsels for our table. After leaving these charming islands, which are under the protection of the French flag, the Nautilus, from the 4th to the 11th of December, traveled about 2,000 miles. The only incident worthy of note during these 2,000 miles was the sight of a vast shoal of calamaries, a strange species of mollusk closely related to the cuttle. French fishermen called them incornets. They belong to the class of cephalopod, order of the dibranchiate, which includes cuttles and argonauts. These aquatic animals were studied with considerable interest by the naturalists of antiquities and provided orators of the agora with numerous metaphors according to the athenius a greek doctor who lived before the time of galen 
they were considered an excellent dish for the table of the rich. It was during the night of the ninth and 10th of December that the Nautilus ran into this shoal of mollusks, which are very active during the night. There are millions of them. They were migrating from the temperate to the warmer zones, following the same route as the herrings and sardines. We watched them through the thick crystal panes, swimming backward at great speed, propelled by means of their locomotive tube, chasing fish and other mollusks, eating the smaller ones in turn, devoured by the bigger ones, and waving in an indescribable confusion the tin arms that nature had placed on their heads like the tresses of pneumatic serpents. In spite of our great speed, it took us several hours to sail through this shoal. Our nets captured a vast number of these creatures, among which I recognized the nine species that Dorbigny had classified for the Pacific Ocean. The ocean, during the cruise, offered us an incessant and infinite display of its most marvelous treasures. There was a continuous change of decor and scenery, as if staged to please our vision, and we were called upon not only to contemplate the works of the Creator in this vast expanse of liquid world, but also to delve into the most redoubtable mysteries of the sea. During the day of the 11th of December, I was busy reading in the large saloon while Ned Lane and Conseil were watching the luminous waters through the half-open panels. The Nautilus was not moving. Her tanks had been filled. She was at a depth of 3,000 feet, a region rarely inhabited by living creatures and where large fish seldom appear. At that moment, I was reading a charming book by Jean Masset called The Slaves of the Stomach and was enjoying some of its ingenious ideas when Conseil interrupted me. Would Monsieur like to come here a moment? He said to me in a strange voice. What is the matter, Conseil? Would Monsieur come and have a look? I got up and leaned in front of the glass pane and looked. There, in the full glare of the searchlight, an enormous, motionless, blackish mass was suspended in the water. I examined it carefully, trying to determine the nature of that gigantic cetacean. But suddenly a thought occurred to me. A ship! I cried. Yes, replied the Canadian, a disabled ship that has sunk perpendicularly. Ned Land was right. We had before us a vessel whose tattered shrouds still hung from their chains. The hull seemed to be intact, and the ruck must have occurred only a few hours before. Three stumps of masts, broken off about two feet above the deck, showed that the ship must have sacrificed them. Lying over on its side, it had filled up and was listing. What a sad spectacle was this broken hulk, lost beneath the waves, but sadder still was the sight of, of its deck, on which a number of bodies bound with ropes were still lying. I counted four men, one of whom was standing clasping the wheel, and also a woman who had half emerged from the poop. Holding a child in her arms, she was young, and in the bright lights of the Nautilus I could clearly see her features, which had not yet been decomposed by the water. With a supreme effort she had raised her infant above her head, and the poor child still had his arms around his mother's neck. The posture of the four sailors were frightened, distorted as if they were by their convulsive movements. They had died making a supreme effort to free themselves from the ropes that bound them to the ship. Only the helmsman, with a calm and grave expression on his face, his gray hair drooping over his forehead, his hand clutching the wheel stood erect, as if he were still steering a ship through the deep waters of that sea. What a spectacle! We stood silent with palpitating hearts in the presence of that spectral tragedy, photographed, as it were, in the last moments of a dying agony. In the distance, enormous sharks, their eyes afire with hunger, were already speeding toward that sunken ship, lured by the prospect of human flesh. As the Nautilus maneuvered around that submerged vessel, I caught a glimpse of her name on the stern. Florida Sunderland. Questions to consider after reading. Why is the mystery of the nationalities of the crew so important to Professor Aranax? What is the ocean to Nemo? What do you think happened to the Florida Sunderland? Mm -hmm.
Thank you for listening to today's chapter. If you would like to discuss the questions, follow me on the Crack Open a Classic podcast Instagram page and comment on today's chapter's post. If you like this podcast, please share it with others so we can get the word out about more classics. If you would like to suggest a book to be read, email me at crackopenaclassicpodcast at gmail.com. Check back tomorrow for the next chapter in this adventure.